This message was presented at the GYC 2011 conference. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. I want to pray with you before we get back into the Word of God together. Father, thank you for the break. You are a God who believes in breaks. Look at how you programmed the Sabbath into the weekly calendar of human survival. We need breaks. We needed that little ten minutes. We need a break every day. We're alone in our prayer closet with you. We, we have that audience with the eternal. We need a weekly break. We need the seventh day to refresh our souls one-on-one with you and with each other. So, break's over now, fathers. We continue uh, examining this gift. Give us minds that are clear to comprehend what the Spirit would teach us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's, let's, let's plunge into Scripture. How, did, how does this gift work? Fascinating. I want to share this with you. Um, and, and we're going we're to move rapidly through this. Let's go to the Apocalypse. Let's go to uh, Revelation chapter 12. This is that great final line in Revelation, the Apocalypse chapter 12. This is the final line. And it's all in uh, symbols, but you know this text well. And the dragon... Hey, who's the dragon, by the way? That's Satan, the devil, the old serpent. Yep. And the dragon was wroth with the woman. Who's the woman? That's the church. Pure woman, pure church. Impure woman, impure church. We're acquainted with it. And the dragon was enraged with the woman. And he went to make war with the rest. The King James says, the remnant of her seed. Who keep the commandments of God... And have what? Testimony of Jesus. Alright, so we, we all cut our eye teeth on this text in our little apocalyptic community of faith. This text, we believe, is a, is a key identifier of God's end time movement. Apocalyptic movement at the end of time. It'll, be, it'll have two characteristics. It'll be a movement that keeps the commandments of God and it will be a movement that has the what? Testimony of Jesus. So it will be, there will be some sort of Christ-saturation, Christ-centeredness that will be significant. So, what's that testimony of Jesus? Let's just, let's, let's just do an old-fashioned Bible study so we go to Revelation chapter 10 to find out, yo, yo, what's the testimony of Jesus all about? Let's find out. And I fell at his feet to worship him. This is John. And by the way, this is the angel Gabriel. And John is so overcome by the glory of this angel. Remember, the angel is like the moon. He only gets his glory from his proximity to the divine. But John is so overwhelmed, he falls at Gabriel's feet to worship him. Gabriel says to John, No, 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 no. See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brothers who have the testimony of Jesus. Oh, there it is. Same phrase, testimony of Jesus. What's the testimony of Jesus? Ah, Gabriel says, Worship God. Here it comes. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Mm, interesting. So God will have a church at the end of time. It will be a church that keeps the commandments of God. And I suppose that would include the fourth commandment, wouldn't it? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? So it will be a church that's a Sabbatarian community. It will be a community of faith that keeps the seventh day Sabbath. Wouldn't that be correct to assume? So it's a church that keeps the commandments of God and has a testimony of Jesus. We stay in the book. We don't go somewhere else. And we, we find in Revelation 19.10, oh yeah, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now let's unpack that just one more text. Put this down. 
Revelation 12, 17, the final community of God's faithful will be one. And let's just do this before we get to that uh, third text. Number one, they will be radically obedient to the commandments of God, including the fourth. So just jot that down. This community of faith, this movement at the end of time will be radically obedient to the commandments of God. And number two, will be radically loyal to the testimony of Jesus. So obedient to God's law, loyal to Jesus' testimony. Two identifying characteristics of this community of faith. So, yeah, but let, let, what's up with this testimony of Jesus? Well, keep writing. We just saw this. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy or the prophetic gift. All right? So now you have this down. You, you, you can do, do a little Bible study. In fact, this is a study guide where you'd be able to do a Bible study with somebody because we're going to look at the four tests of a prophet. All right, so we now know that the uh, testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy or the prophetic gift. Now I want to give you that third text. This is the third text, Revelation 22.9. You've got the study guide now, so you'll have all this. It's not like you're, scrab- sc- you're scrambling to write the text down. Revelation 22.9, Then he, Gabriel, said to me, John does the same thing all over again. Gabriel shows up and he falls down and worships him. Gabriel's thinking to himself, John, we've been to this once. But he, he doesn't. He's very gracious. He says, John, see that you do not do that. He just said this. For I am your fellow servant and of your brothers the prophets. Now notice there's a slight change here. I'm of your brothers the prophets and of those who keep the words of this book worship God. Now, Remember, in his previ- Gabriel, previously to, John, previously to John, he said, I am your fellow servant and of your brothers who have the testimony of Jesus. You remember he said that? Now he doesn't say they have the testimony of Jesus. What, what does he just call them? He says they're prophets. So the testimony of Jesus is prophet. To have the testimony of Jesus is to have a prophet. Because he did, didn't Gabriel just say that? Instead of saying testimony of Jesus this time, he says, I'm, just, I'm one of the prophets. So to have the testimony of Jesus is to have the gift of prophecy in the community. The existence of a prophet. Now, you, you know, obviously, where we're going with this. But you say, ah, oh, come on, Dwight. Well, let's, 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 let's get this down. The spirit of prophecy is manifested through the ministry of a prophet. Don't want to forget you to give you that one. Yeah, the spirit of prophecy is manifest through the ministry of a prophet. But you say, ah, oh, come on. Well, you might as well get this down too. Clearly, God's final community of faithful on earth will have the ministry of a prophet in their midst. Prophet in their midst. Ah. And I say, ah, but you know what, Dwight? The fact of the matter is there are so many spiritual communities that claim the ministry of a prophet in their midst. There is no way we're going to be able... They can't all be manifestations of the genuine gift. Especially when, when some of them are in blatant contradiction with each other. So how in the world are we supposed to know which one is the genuine, which one is the not genuine? What's a thinking person supposed to do? Come on. So the, so the community of faith at the end has a prophet. How am I going to know? There are all kinds of people that claim to be prophets today. So how do we know? Oh, we've got to check it out. Let's go. God makes, before we take a look at these four, four uh, tests, God makes a very unusual statement about the uh, gift of prophecy. Watch this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19, Paul writing, Do not quench the Spirit. All right? Don't, 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 don't limit the Spirit. Don't quench Him. Do not quench the Spirit. Verse 20, Do not despise prof- prophecies. Don't just be automatic, knee-jerk reaction. Ah, I'm against prophecies. No. 
Instead, verse 21, test all things, hold fast to what is good. Oh, Doug, you did something. (laughs) Shall I open the doors that we find out? (laughs) Whatever it was, you go, Doug. Okay, so so you've got to test all things. I've got to tell you about Doug, since this is about Doug. We invited Doug Batcher to come into a Pioneer Memorial Church on the campus of Andrews University to do an evangelistic series. And if you've ever watched Doug, there's, there's nobody like Doug. I mean, he got to Michigan. It was so cold in Michigan that one night he stood up to preach. He said, listen, I don't know how you guys survived Michigan. I have to wear these. And he pulled his suit pants up and he had red long johns on, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and the place just erupted, as you just did. And so one night, listen to this. So one night, Doug is teaching jewelry. All right? Jewelry. He says, listen. I don't know what the big deal about jewelry is. If you want to wear something expensive on your body, why don't you just do this? And he reached into his wallet and he pulled out, I don't know if he had a $100 bill or what, but he took a $100 bill and he just wadded it up into a little tube like this. Then he pulled out another one and he wadded it up. Listen, if you, if you want to wear something expensive and you want people to notice it, why don't you just do this? So he, put, he stuck them both in his ear and just... <laughs> $200 bill sticking out of his ear. Look, if you want people to notice that you're wearing valuable stuff, put the $100 up here. So there's no telling what he's doing in there right now. But I believe it's anointed by the Holy Spirit. So... Okay, let's go. All right, so Paul says, hey guys, you've got to check it all out. You've got to test. And I'm going to give you... Paul says, you've got to examine these. It's okay. Don't despise prophecies. Don't take this knee-jerk... Ah, I don't believe prophets. They're all wackos. They're all, they're all fakes. Ooh, you're going to throw the, you're going to throw the genuine out with the, with the false if you're not careful. So you've got to test them. Okay, here we go. So, how am I to know? Four tests. And by the way... There are a lot of uh, quacks out there. I mean, every time I go through Walmart, I have, sometimes do, <laughs> I have to do shopping at Walmart. I love to go through the cashier line. And what I do when I go through the cashier line is I want to check out the headlines. All right? National Enquirer, you know, that kind of thing. So the first thing I do before I do that is I look around to make sure none of you is there. And then I, I pull this thing out because it said... Ten predictions for 2012. I want to know what they're saying about 2012. So they're, they're, they're a dime a dozen. Super, uh, supermarket psychics, we call them. How do we know whether the gift is genuine or not? I want to run these by you. Four tests that will separate the genuine from the counterfeit. Test number one, Isaiah 8.20. The word of the true prophet is in agreement with the word of God. It's got to be in agreement, guys. In agreement with the word of God. Isaiah 8.20. Let's check Isaiah 8.20 out. Did you get in agreement? Here we go to Isaiah 8.20. To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. All right. Gerhard Fondo. Every true prophet has made the writings of previous prophets the benchmark for his or her own ministry. That's a key point. Every true prophet makes the previous prophets the benchmark. They're not going to be in disagreement. You're not going to find a supermarket tabloid that is in disagreement with the previous prophets and be genuine. Can't be genuine. You don't match the fruit to the law and to the testimony. Fondle's making a, a good point. Test number two. Well, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. So reinforce Isaiah 8.20. Here's test number two. 
Jeremiah 28, verses 8 and 9, the prediction of the true prophet comes true. That's a test. The prediction of the true prophet comes true. This is the most common and familiar test we use to gauge the veracity of the so-called prophet. But I tell you what, this is a tricky one. Now that you've written it down, I'm going to run some examples by you. The test of the true prophet comes true. Nostradamus. You see, you've heard of Nostradamus, of course. Nostradamus supposedly predicted the Great Fire of London in 1666 with his quatrain. Remember, he wrote those little quatrains, the little four-line, four-line pithy statements. And he believed, and others taught, that he was predicting the future. Now, he wrote this about London. The blood of the just will be demanded of London, burnt by the fire in the year 66. A hundred years before the London fire, he wrote those words. Ah, Nostradamus is a true prophet. Yes or no? Well, I mean, you're not going to build a real strong case yet. Let's try another one. Here is the Irish seer, all right? Here's an Irish prophet named Cairo. He twice, listen to this, he twice warned the journalist W.T. Steed in 1894 and again in 1911 that he would drown. He warned this journalist, you're going to drown in April 1912. Steed indeed did drown when the Titanic sank in April of 1912. Twice before he drowned. He warned him, you're going to drown you're going to die in April 1912. Does that make him a true prophet? Cairo a true prophet? Jean Dixon, you ever heard of her? Our American prophetess? You've heard of Jean Dixon, perhaps. Jean Dixon, listen to this one. 1956, she predicted the election of a Democrat as President of the United States in 1960, but that he would be assassinated in office. Guess what? John Kennedy was elected a Democrat in 1960, and he was assassinated in office. Does that make Jean Dixon a true prophetess? She nailed that one on the head. Is she a true prophet? No, declares God through Moses. Because watch this. I'll put this up and you'll fill this in in your study guide, please. First, we've got to read Jeremiah. Jeremiah 28.8 The prophets who have been before me and before you of old prophesied against many countries and great kingdoms of war and disaster and pestilence. As for the prophet who prophesies of peace, when the word of the prophet comes to what? When the word of the prophet comes to pass, the prophet will be known as one whom the Lord has sent, truly sent. So is Gene Dixon, Cairo, Nostradamus. No, there's one caveat that God sends through Moses. Jot this down. Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 4 declares that test number 2 is only valid if test number 1 is true. What's test number 1? You've got to speak according to the... Yeah, according to the Word, according to the Law and the Prophets. So test number 2 is only valid if test number 1 is true. In other words, fulfilled predictions must be matched by the prophet's genuine harmony with God's Word. So just because Cairo nails W.T. Sneed and the Titanic doesn't make him a true prophet. Nor Gene Dixon for that same reason, nor Nostradamus. So that's a key caveat for you. God himself through Moses says you've got to have test one in order for test two to be valid. All right, let's go to test number three. 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. The focus of the true prophet is on the truth about Jesus Christ. Write that down, please. The true prophet is going to focus on the truth about Jesus Christ. 
Let's read 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. It's no wonder, jot this down, it's no wonder that Revelation, when it's, when it's depicting the, the apocalyptic community of faith at the end of time, God's last true community of faith on earth, it's no wonder that Revelation 12, 17 declares, in that community, the spirit of prophecy will be manifested as the testimony, write that down, as the testimony of Jesus. Test number three is saturated with Jesus. No wonder, Revelation 12, 17 says, the community the community at the end will be saturated with the testimony of Jesus. In fact, you can jot that down. A genuine prophet at the end of time will be saturated, saturated with the truth about Jesus, incarnated God, atoning Savior, mediating high priest, divine judge, and soon coming deliverer. Yeah. Test number three, Jesus-centered. Finally, let's jot it down. Test number four, we've already been working this one over. But it's a good one to remind ourselves. This is the test. Jot it down. The life and influence of the true prophet demonstrate the fruits, the fruits of the Spirit of Jesus. I want to read that passage again. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. Somebody came up to me, by the way, in the break and said, you know what? This suggests that a criminal who's done bad things can do no good things. But don't criminals love their children and don't criminals do kind? Absolutely, they do. But remember, Jesus' test is not for the criminal. Jesus' test is not for a good husband or a bad wife or the other way around. Jesus' test is for false prophets. That's the test. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. In other words, a false prophet is out for gain. The false prophet is out to, to accumulate a, a, a following. Jim Jones, you ever remember that name? Jim Jones, Guyana, Jonestown, Guyana. He was a false prophet. He claimed David Koresh. That's, uh, that's a name from our past, isn't it? David Koresh. Waco, good night. We're in Texas. Waco, Texas. False prophet. False prophet. Uh, did he do some good things? Yeah, sure. False prophet. The tenure of his ministry. The very evident track of his life. Boy, false prophet. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. A good tree cannot bear good fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Did David Koresh do good things? Of course he did. So it's not saying, oh, I won't be able to find anything good in Gene Dixon. No. You're looking at the tenor of the life. You're looking at the trend, the track of that, that gift. The gift will not be good. Koresh just had a terrible fruit. It ended up destroying that entire community, as did Jim Jones, by the way. Therefore, by their fruits, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. It's called the orchard test. This is the orchard test. What are the fruits like? Would you jot this down, please? A prophetic ministry that bears the fruits of the Spirit demonstrates its divine authority and corroborates its divine calling. Therefore, by their fruits... You see, the fruit will be, if the fruit is there, divine authority. If the fruit is there, surely a divine calling. Therefore, by their fruits, Jesus says, you will know them. Okay, so here's the question. So how does Ellen White, because we've we, we got, we got to put the test now. 
The rubber meets the road. How does this 19th century, early 20th century wife, mother, homemaker, visionary, church leader, public speaker, intrepid traveler, institutional builder, best-selling and most translated American author in history, how does her prophetic life ministry stand up to these four major tests? Let's find out. But before we do, I need to share with you a fascinating bit of discovery. This is something else. George Barna. Have you ever heard of George Barna? George Barna is a Christian demographer. Those of us that work in the area of ministry are, are well acquainted with George Barna because he runs, he runs an institute out of California where they poll evangelical Christianity. They're always polling, getting the pulse. George Barna, a few years ago, I just chanced upon this, did a survey of the clergy in America. And he asked the clergy, what is it you're reading? We want to know what you're reading. So the clergy responded by the hundreds. All denominations, by the way. They responded. Barna isolates the, their responses by age. Now, I'm going to put something on the screen for you right now. Clergy, pastors under the age of 40. Under the age of 40. He's writing about them. The under 40 pastors champion, who are their favorite authors, champion several authors who are not ranked highly by older church leaders. Those authors included business consultant James Collins, who wrote the book Good to Great, seminary professor Tom Rain, who wrote the book The Simple Church, which I'm reading right now, and 19th century Seventh-day Adventist icon Ellen White and John Ortberg. They did a survey, not our church, not our seminary. George Barna, the great evangelical demographer today, he's a pollster. He surveys evangelical Christianity in North America. And he found out when he asked the pastors under the age of 40, what are you reading? That in the top four books they're reading, top four authors rather that they're reading, guess who's there with them? Ellen White. You and I go around apologizing. Well, I'm so sorry. Yes, she's a, yes, I'm, yeah, yes, I know something about her. We go around apologizing. And people who are not in our community of faith, who are spiritual leaders in multiple communities of faith, rank her as one of their top four authors that they read and are blessed by under the age of 40. Amazing. Amazing. Wow. Maybe we ought to quit apologizing for the gift. Maybe the gift really was intended to jump denominational lines and begin to impact readers outside of our community of faith. Whoa. Now look, we're going to apply these four tests to Ellen White, okay? Let's do it. But please keep this in mind. Ellen White never called herself a prophet. Ever, ever, ever. Watch this. But these are her words. Others have called me a prophetess, but I have never assumed that title. I have not felt that it was my duty thus to designate myself. I regard myself, jot this down, I regard myself as a messenger. Isn't that something? I regard myself as a messenger entrusted by the Lord with messages for his people. End quote. By the way, do you know that Ellen White never sought the office? No genuine prophet ever seeks the office because nobody in his or her right mind 
would wish to reap the fruit and the public ridicule that goes with the job. Ask Jeremiah if he called himself to the, to the prophetic office. Hey, hey, Jeremy, did you call yourself, did you pick this job? Ask Jeremiah. They ended up killing him in the end. Ask Isaiah, hey, Isaiah, did you choose to be a prophet? Got sawn asunder by Manasseh at the end of his life. Ask John the Baptist, was it a great job? Hey, John, you loved it, didn't you? Great job. I bet you picked the job for yourself. No genuine prophet ever picks his or her calling. You wouldn't pick it in your right mind. In fact, Ellen White refused it. She wrestled. She protested. Watch this. In my second vision, about a week after the first, remember the first one, if we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus? The next one. In my second vision, about a week after the first, the Lord gave me a view of the trials through which I must pass. In gentle preparation for what you are to face, I'm going to let you know, by the way, I haven't called you to something easy. He gave me a view of the trials through which I must pass and told me that I must go and relate to others what He had related to me. It was shown me that my labors would meet with great opposition and that my heart would be rent, torn with anguish, but that the grace of God would be sufficient to sustain me through all. This is, this is going to break your heart, girl. You're going to wish you had never said yes. I'm just warning you. I need you to say yes. But I'm warning you. But I was assured that the grace of God would be sufficient to sustain me through all for several days. Now here it comes. For several days. And far into the night, I prayed that this burden might be removed from me and laid upon someone more capable of bearing it. But the light of duty did not change and the words of the angel sounded continually in my ears. Make known to others what I have revealed to you. You just tell them. I'll take care of the consequences. You take care of delivering the message. And my grace will be sufficient. Do you think Paul chose to be a prophet? How many times was he stoned? Shipwrecked? How many times? Forty less one lashes. And finally beheaded. Nobody, no genuine prophet ever chooses a calling. That's the point. And so this little 17-year-old girl Resolved that by the grace of God, she would be faithful to His calling for the rest of her life. And God gave her a 70-year prolific ministry from the age of 17 until she died at the age of 87. 70 years she was given that ministry. Whoa. Okay, Dwight, come on, come on. You're beating around the bush. You don't want us to know about these four tests. No, I want you to know. Let's go. Let's check them out. All right, test number one. How does she measure up? Test number one. Isaiah 20. What was the test? The word of the true prophet is in agreement with the word of God. I, I wish I had desire of ages. I had to fly on a plane and I did it all carry on. And so I didn't bring my uh, desire of ages in great controversy. But if I could write in front of you, open to the back, the scriptural index, I went and counted them. And I'm going to give you the number. Desire of ages, 960. If you want to jot this down somewhere. 960. Or you can count them yourself. 960 direct references to Holy Scripture in Desire of Ages, the life of Christ, the classic on the life of Jesus. 960. So then I go to Great Controversy. Guess what? 690 direct references. These are not illusions. These are not, these are not echoes. 
inferences. These are direct quotations where the verse is noted. 690 in Great Controversy. And by the way, in the introduction to the book Great Controversy, these words, the Spirit was not given nor can it ever be bestowed to supersede the Bible. Some of the critics say, you know what, you Adventists, she thinks she's equivalent to the Bible, you think she's equivalent to the Bible, you guys are all anti-Protestant. We do not think she's... That, that's a trumped-up trumped charge. It's simply not true. We have never believed, nor has she, that her writings were somehow equivalent to the Bible. Rubbish. That's a straw man that they build and then beat it to the ground. Anybody can do that. The Spirit was not given, nor can it ever be bestowed to supersede the Bible, for the Scriptures explicitly state that the Word of God is a standard by which all teaching and experience must be tested. Test number one, does she speak according to the law and the prophets? Put a check mark there. There is no false prophet in the world who would say, you must take my teachings and subordinate them to Holy Scripture. Are you kidding? False prophets are hoping you'll never find Holy Scripture. Because they know they're in conflict. False prophet will never say, put my writings up to Holy Scripture, check them out for yourself. All right. Test number two. What was test number two? You remember Jeremiah 28? What's the, give me the bottom line of Jeremiah 28. What's supposed to happen with this test? What? The prediction comes true. That's kind of the one we always use to check a prophet out. The prediction comes true. Let's find out. Okay, so we're talking about Ellen White. On September 1, 1902, Ellen White wrote these words. Put them on the screen for you. Well-equipped tent meetings should be held in the large cities such as San Francisco. For not long hence, these cities will suffer under the judgments of God. San Francisco and Oakland are becoming as Sodom and Gomorrah, and the Lord will visit them in wrath. That's September 1, 1902. Four years later, April 16, 1906, she received a vision. All right, this is April 16, 1906, while at Loma Linda, California, April 16, 1906, there passed before me a most distressing representation. During a vision of the night, I stood on an eminence, a rocky outcropping, from which I could see houses shaken like a reed in the wind. Buildings, great and small, were falling to the ground. Pleasure resorts, theaters, hotels, the homes of the wealthy, wealthy were shaken and shattered. Many lives were blotted out of existence, and the air was filled with the shrieks of the injured and the terrified. Two days later, two days after she wrote this, two days later, 5.12 in the morning, April 18, 1906, a 270-mile section of the San Andreas Fault slipped, generating a massive 7.7 to 7.9 magnitude quake that destroyed the mighty seaport of San Francisco. There it is. That's a photograph. Property loss was measured at a rate of $1 million every 10 minutes. Now, you know, a $1 million back then was not a million today. $1 million every 10 minutes. Obviously, a fire is also destroying as the minutes progress. For greater than the earthquake devastation were the raging fires that swept the city. The loss of human life was numbing. Listen to this. Telegraph lines went wild. Rumors of Chicago in flames, New York City destroyed by a tidal wave. It was the panic of doomsday when San Francisco was stricken. Two days after that vision. 
Wow. Here's something else. Very fascinating about this uh, prediction. This is so countercultural, so counter-social for Ellen White to pen one of her most sobering predictions, written April 21, 1890 in Signs of the Time magazine. And I'll tell you why it's countercultural. Because back in the turn of the century, the 1890s, do you know what America believed? That life was moving to a utopian paradise. That the world was actually getting better. And people... Multiple denominations, people not in church at all, are all predicting we are on the cusp of a glorious new chapter in human existence. Ellen White says, whoa, 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 time out, whoa. Ew. It's not that way at all. It's the exact opposite. And she wrote these words. The tempest is coming and we must get ready for its fury by having repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord will arise to shake terribly the earth. We shall see troubles on all sides. Thousands of ships will be hurled into the depths of the sea. Navies will go down and human lives will be sacrificed by millions. Fires will break out unexpectedly and no human effort will be able to quench them. The palaces of earth will be swept away in the fury of the flames. Disasters by rail will become more and more frequent. Confusion, collision, and death without a moment's warning will occur on the great lines of travel. The end is near. Probation is closing. Oh, let us seek God while He may be found and call upon Him while He is near. Whew. That's not your old uh, zippity-doo-dah, zippity-day. My, oh my, what a wonderful day. Countercultural to the max. And yet, what was coming? No one, of course, at the time when she wrote those words in 1890 had any inkling that the facade of an impending millennial peace would be shattered by World War I in 20 years and World War II 30 years thereafter. Nobody had any clue that entire navies would be sunk. Millions upon millions would perish. Death on the great lines of travel. Nobody knew that there would be automobile accidents a half a million a year where you die instantly. She wrote that. It wasn't a fun thing to write. It wasn't a popular prediction to make. But guess what? She was right. What's test number two? Could it be the prophet speaks the truth about God and I should be obeying? Could it be she is a genuine prophet and what she writes has moral implications for the way I live my life today? Test number three. What's test number three? Focus of the true prophets on the truth about Jesus Christ. Well, we know this one, don't we? I, I shared just a moment ago in the first half that of all the authors I've read in my lifetime, none have been more, none has been more Christocentric or Jesus-focused than Ellen White. I, mean, I, just, I just say that without apology. If you can find me a more Christocentric writer, bring that author to me and I'll eat my words and I'll retract them. I don't believe you'll find one. Saturated, saturated with the Lord Jesus. I want to share something that my friend Merlin Burt, who's director of the Center for Adventist Research at Andrews University, is tremendous help for me when I was doing this research. In a paper he wrote, he, he, he made this point. If it is true that Jesus gave his own testimony through the prophetic gift as explained by John in Revelation, 
Okay, if it's true, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, then it is imperative that we listen. Look, if that's the testimony of Jesus, we've really got to listen, guys. I mean, we can't just blow it off. The testimony of Jesus brings us redemption and His loving guidance in a world broken by sin and suffering. If the gift is the testimony of Jesus, man, I, I, I want to be listening rather closely to that gift, wouldn't you? Now, Merlin shared with me one of Ellen White's most touching and spiritually compelling letters. He found it. This, this letter has not been published. It was written to her twin sister. I got his permission. Elizabeth, Lizzie. It's written the year Lizzie died. So Ellen is writing to her twin. So this is private correspondence. She never intended for anybody to read this. She didn't know the GYC would be in Houston and we'd have it up on a big screen. She had no clue. This is personal correspondence. I'm going to put the words on the screen for you. She's writing to her sister, Lizzie, who didn't live as a Christian through most of her adult life. Letter's never been published. Okay, here we go. Lizzie will die this year. Ellen White writing to her sister. I love to speak of Jesus, Lizzie, and His matchless love, and my whole soul is in this work. And nobody's going to be reading this. I have not one doubt of the love of God and His care and His mercy and His ability to save to the utmost all who come to Him. Don't you believe in Jesus, Lizzie? She's going for the closest one on earth to her and she's, she's pulling at the heartstrings. She says, come on, Lizzie. Don't you believe in Jesus, Lizzie? Do you not believe He is your Savior? That He has evidenced His love for you in giving His own precious life that you might be saved? Oh, I pray most earnestly that the Lord Jesus shall reveal Himself to you and Reuben, her husband. Dear sister, it's no wonderful thing that you have to do. It's not like you've got to come up with some grand accomplishment and then you're going to get saved. No, no, no. There is one, Lizzie, who died that you might live through eternal ages. Just believe that Jesus will hear your confession. Receive your penitence and forgive. He'll receive your penitence and He will forgive every sin and make you and Reuben, children of God. Oh, and as she's writing sister to sister, I long to take you in my arms and lay you on the bosom of Jesus Christ. Private letter. If I could just carry you and hold you and take you to Jesus. With Jesus as your blessed friend, Lizzie, you need not fear to die, for it will be to you like closing your eyes here and opening them in heaven. Then we shall meet never more to part. Now, ladies and gentlemen, is that a beautiful personal testimony or what? It wasn't written for show. It was written for her sis, her twin, whom she hopes will not die without knowing Jesus. I'd say that's pretty Christ-centered, wouldn't you? I mean, if I could pick you up, girl, if I could take you myself to Jesus, I would. Wow. And finally, test number four. The life and influence of the true prophet demonstrate the fruits of the Spirit of Jesus. We've already been through this. Well, hey, listen, guys. Was Ellen White perfect? Was her life flawless? Was it flawless? Was Jeremiah flawless? Was Isaiah flawless? No. Was John the Baptist flawless? Who sends disciples and say, Hey, guys, go and ask this Messiah. Go and ask this Messiah guy. Ask him, Are you really the one who is to come or is someone else coming? Have we got this all wrong? Was John the Baptist flawless? No. He was human. He was broken. He was alone in that dungeon and discouraged to beat the man. Go ask Jesus if he's really the Messiah.
No, Ellen White made mistakes. She had character weaknesses. She was fallible. And we're going to look at her fallibility tomorrow morning because the critics are gunning for her. But the trend of her life, listen to this, the trend of her life was such that when she died, the, what's the, the St. Helena Star carried this story July 23, 1950. This is not a church paper. This is not the Adventist Review. This is a new secular newspaper. And the title of the story was Called to Her Reward. I'm reading the words now that appeared in print by a newspaper upon her death. The life of Mrs. White is an example worthy of emulation by all. She was a humble, devout disciple of Christ and ever went about doing good. Her death marks the calling of another noted leader of religious thought and one whose almost 90 years were full to overflowing with good deeds, kind words, and earnest prayers for all mankind. Would you call that good fruit or bad fruit? And when a secular press picks it up, would that be a plus or a minus? A bad tree cannot have good fruit. Wow. By their fruits, Jesus said, you will know them. I believe, ladies and gentlemen, that on the level of all four tests, Ellen White's writings and her prophetic ministry successfully pass and meet the four tests. But don't take my word for it. You go check it out yourself. Take all the time you wish. There's no rush. Make sure that you examine the evidence. I personally believe that if you will examine the evidence carefully and closely, that you will come, you'll be led to the same conclusion I've come to. Taste them again. Taste them again for the first time. Let me pray with you. Dear God, four simple tests embedded in Holy Scripture. There are more tests. These are the four that emerge. These four prominent tests, Father, we put the gift up beside it. This testimony of Jesus. What does the evidence reveal? Dear God, each of us, may the gift of the Holy Spirit coach each of us. Because look, if this gift is for real, at this waning moment of earth's history, if this gift is for real, then if we ever needed the gift before, we sure do need it now. So to that end, give us intelligent minds and clear thinking. For the glory and honor of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.com dot o r g